All right, thanks, guys. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha, and Merry Christmas to, uh, to you all. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting today, welcome again. Uh, Spencer said earlier to our church. Glad you guys are with us. Uh, we are going to dive in today to uh, kind of a second week of a um, mini-series of sorts, an Advent mini-series here. Last week, we looked at Matthew 1, and uh, this week, we're going to look at Luke 1, which are uh, the, really the two, uh, in terms of the gospel accounts and what the New Testament has to say about it, the two uh, birth narratives of the New Testament and, and, uh, and surrounding uh, issues. And so we'll look at uh, Luke's um, vantage point, theologically you could say, today from Luke 1, 5 uh, to, um, to 38. So if you want to open your Bibles there, uh, that'd be great. We'll have on screen too, I think, uh, most of today's passages. But if you have a Bible, if you want to open a pew Bible to page 855, that's uh, where we're at. Or if you have a device of some kind or your own Bible, that'd be great um, as well. So but like I said, last week, uh, Spencer looked at Matthew 1 with, uh, with the idea of Emmanuel, God being with us, and uh, Luke, uh, the other gospel writer who uh, has a birth narrative uh, in his gospel, also, uh, ju- he juxtaposes the birth of Christ with another one, which is really uh, interesting and intriguing and important, kind of weird in a lot of ways, but before he talks about Mary and Joseph and Jesus, he talks about Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist was kind of the final Old Testament prophet in a way, the final arrow, the final pointer, the most explicit kind of here is Christ. He's on the threshold of, of, of history and, and, and New Testament theology and all of that, reality. Uh, and so he, his birth uh, announcement comes beforehand to Zechariah, his dad, kind of to Elizabeth, his mom, who's barren. Then after that, we see uh, Mary also hear from the same angel, Gabriel, uh, the same kinds of things, been a reference to uh, Christ, even though she's a virgin, she's going to conceive from the Holy Spirit and so forth. We'll get, we'll get to that in a little bit. But the fact that Luke juxtaposes these things are really, it's really important. We learn a lot about Christ and, and theology and the New Testament, the kingdom of God, because of how these two things are set uh, next, to, uh, next to each other. They, they, in fact, represent, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but they, in fact, represent two testaments or two covenants or two ways of God relating to people they're kind of similar in some ways, but also distinctly uh, different in other ways. And those differences are especially important, how they, they show movements from the former way of God working in the world or relating to people to this new and better way he's going to relate to people through Jesus Christ. So, so John the Baptist and Zechariah and Elizabeth, they, they kind of serve as this final, in one sense, this final picture of the Old Testament way of God relating to people and how he's announced and, and these different things that happened to Zechariah when he disbelieves the prophecy about Elizabeth, his old barren, can't have kids anymore, wife, all of a sudden becoming pregnant miraculously by God's hand. A movement from that to uh, Mary, who does believe, and actually for, at first doesn't believe, but isn't punished for her sin. We'll talk about that comparison here in just a little bit, but uh, also who does actually eventually believe and who is uh, not a priest, not a significant figure, not a leader type. Uh, she's just this woman kind of no-name woman in the middle of uh, Galilee who's just uh, spoken to. And so that's, uh, that's an important piece, too, which I'll get to a little bit later. But they represent two covenants, the former giving way to the latter, old giving way to the new, the lesser to the greater, the preparatory giving way to the, the fulfillment. And so that's the plan for today. Uh, Luke 1, 5 to 38, so a fairly lengthy passage. I'll just kind of fly through here, and then we'll just look at a few of the verses, really on more of a, um, a uh, bird's-eye view a perspective. So let's start in verse uh, 5, and these first um, about 20 verses or so reference Zechariah and John the Baptist and Elizabeth, and then we'll move on to Mary 
and Jesus uh, right after that in verse 24 and following. It's a little bit of context there. So verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this from an old man, and my wife is advanced in years? And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. <clears throat> After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in uh, her old age, and she has also conceived a son, and, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right, so like I said before, uh, we're going to look at some of the similarities and differences today. We'll start with uh, one, I think, uh, of the more important similarities between these stories. And if you weren't aware, the Bible works uh, in the area, the literary device of repetition quite frequently, especially in narrative, to drive home points. And so uh, it's, it just happens to be the case today that we see a lot of similarities in these two birth announcement narratives uh, that uh, drive home important theological points about what the gospel is, who Christ is, what he's coming to do, what God's up to in this part of history and beforehand too, but especially now with the birth of John the Baptist, but especially 
the birth of, of Jesus Christ and his ministry and eventually his, his death on a cross for our, our sins. And then we'll talk about some of the differences between these two juxtaposed angelic birth announcements that really, again, like I said before, hearken the arrival of the New Testament, which we're not there yet, even though I know your Bibles have this white page with just New Testament on it right before Matthew 1, uh, and there's this neat division there in one sense, liter literarily. Uh, but in another sense, the New Testament does not begin until Jesus dies on a cross for our sins. Jesus says clearly at the Last Supper that the New Testament's in my blood. The new covenantal way of God relating to people by grace alone and our faith in that and that work of God in the world through Jesus Christ, that, that's a new thing that, that occurs and is wrapped up around Jesus' death and resurrection, not the manger. So in one sense, this is not the New Testament yet. It's the end of the Old Testament. It's kind of the beginning of the, the dawn of the New Testament. There are new things happening here which point ahead to the cross. But like that song we sang earlier, if we don't tie manger and cross together, if we don't sing, nails, spears shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me and you, we're missing the entire point of Christianity. So Christmas is a whisper, but the cross is a shout. And so this is still a hint, though. It's still a prophetic uh, whisper and hint. God's working narratively in history uh, through people and circumstances, like even just simple birth announcements to tell us something deeply theological and true and good and beautiful about Christ and what's new about him, juxtaposed to what was going on in the Old Testament times and how that was different and lesser and preparatory and being passed away or passed over. So first, the similarities. So first, what's the same? There's a lot of similarities here. You may pick up a couple of them yourself as we read through them. Uh, things like Gabriel being the angel that talked to both uh, Zechariah and then Mary, uh, him saying, do not fear twice, which I will come back to a little bit at the end, but uh, that's also a sermon in and of itself. Uh, but what I really want to focus on today the biggest similarity, I think, in one sense has to do with the uh, theme of miraculous conception here. So whether from barrenness, in Elizabeth's case, or virginity, in Mary's case, uh, and actually you do see a progression there even there, right? From barrenness, which that is a miracle to, be, to have your barrenness overcome, but to overcome virginity is an even bigger miracle. And so uh, the, as is the case with Mary and Jesus, we see something even better happening, uh, happening there. But Regardless, in both cases, it's a miracle. God's at work helping both barrenness and virginity to be overcome uh, towards conception. But it's a very common theme elsewhere in the Bible uh, as well, spanning both testaments. You see it all over the place. Uh, but the point is always to point to a time when God will fully and ultimately bring life from non-life. I'm skipping over a lot here because just for the sake of time today, but basically when this is occurring narratively or prepositionally, so when God just might state these things elsewhere more clearly in the Bible, but it could happen in a more foggily way like it is today through narrative, the point is always uh, to point to a time when God will fully and ultimately bring life from non-life. Water to our dry beds, breath to the lungs of the dead. That's the point of God working in this way in uh, the lives of, of these particular women today, but also in earlier parts of biblical history as well. So really, it's a symbol of Christ ahead of time. Galatians 4 in the New Testament says, and I'm, this is my gross paraphrase, because <laughs> it's a 10-verse uh, section here, but basically what Paul is writing to this Galatian church about in New Testament times is he's looking back to this, uh, this circumstance in Genesis with Abraham and his wife Sarah, and uh, she was also barren and actually passed the age of childbearing, but also was miraculously allowed to, to conceive and have, have a son named Isaac. But, um, but the, the, the main thing I want you to see today is that in Galatians 4, basically his theological point to this is to say, look back 
into Genesis and Old Testament time periods and say, the, the line of Christ, genealogically and theologically, is the line where God says to multiple old and barren women over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you're going to have a baby. That's the line that Christ came from. And it's, it's important that he does uh, to tell us theological things about what this New Testament's going to be like and how God is going to save people from their sins. What the, what the true nature of salvation really is, what it means to be the church and, and so forth. So Christ comes in the tradition of that. In the genealogical and spiritual and theological tradition of over and over and over again, old, past the age of childbearing women, barren women, and in Mary's case, a virgin, God saying to those people, you will just have a baby because I intend it. I am miraculously working in your life. You have nothing, <laughs> one sense, this is the subtext of it, right? You are bringing nothing to the table here. I am creating life. You aren't contributing somehow. I am bringing life out of non-life. Like I worked in the very beginning in Genesis 1 and I looked into the, into the, into the void or the never as I looked into the, 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 the vast void that there was before me in, in all the, the universe. There wasn't even a universe then. God said, let there be light and there was. He, he made out of nothing. He made things out of things that weren't. In the same way, uh, God is working here through, uh, through conception. Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, though it's a little bit different, they point to that line, but they're not of that line. They are of the line of Aaron. And I'm not going to go into that today, but they are not of the line of David, not of the line of the, of the Messiah. They're of a different genealogical, theological line, which kind of undergirds what I'm going to say today, but I'm going to also not spend 20 minutes on that uh, today as well. So they point to it, though, because Elizabeth also has her barrenness overcome, but, but Mary's in, really in, in the bullseye here. So theologically, uh, this is a reminder then as we get to Christ and we kind of pull back the curtains and see what the, the spiritual gospel lesson is here, is it's a reminder that we don't have life within us on our own, spiritually speaking. We're all barren. God has to be the one to save us like he had to be the one to make Elizabeth conceive. He had to be the one to make Mary conceive. Right? There, there was no other way. In the same way, God has to be the one to choose to save us, to show up into the world and to do something to save us from our spiritual condition. Joseph and Zechariah as husbands, or Mary and Elizabeth as wives, actually Mary and Joseph are engaged at this point, but Mary and Elizabeth as wives, so they, they couldn't, post uh, having these kids, they couldn't look back and say to themselves and to God, look what I've done, Right? You know, Joseph couldn't look at Jesus one day and say, nailed it, you know, right? He, he did nothing. They, they never had sex. And, and even in, in Zechariah and Elizabeth's case, he, 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 had, he had nothing to contribute to the birth of John the Baptist. They couldn't say nailed it. They couldn't say, look what I did. God had to do literally everything to bring life from non-life here. The lesson is the same with, with, it's the same with salvation. It's the same with the gospel. Uh, just like the gospel says to us, Jesus died for us. We didn't die for God, uh, and, and we didn't work to get back to him. Jesus died for us. Uh, it's, it's the same thing here. So, so we can't say before God in any way, look what I've done. It's, it's, it's the same thing. We can't say nailed it as we look back at our life and say, I was a pretty good person. Nailed it. Like, it's not the way you get in. It's not, it's not, it's not, that's not the right posture before God. The right posture is, I've done nothing. No matter how good I've been. You know, even Zechariah and Elizabeth here are people who it says, 
have kept the commandments and have lived a life of blamelessness before God really doesn't really matter. As you, we'll see here in a second how this plays out in the narrative. It, he's not better off than Mary. Mary's not even mentioned in reference to law at all, but is favored. See, the point is being favored. The point is not being a good person and trying really hard to perform before God. The point is, are we favored or not? Are we loved? Are we pursued by God? And the answer is yes. So what makes Christmas such ama- so amazing and Easter even better is that it's, it's the, it's, it is the posture of God towards lost sinners. God's saying, you couldn't come to heaven, so I'm going to come to earth and be born in a manger. You couldn't get up to me, so I'm going to come down to you. You couldn't climb the ladder, so I'm going to build my own ladder down to you, and I'm going to die in a tree in a cursed manner among criminals, so that my righteousness will be passed to you, and all of your sin and, and muck, spiritually speaking, will be placed upon my shoulders, and I'll die as a substitute for you. So that, that's the gospel, and What's happening here, kind of in the, again, in the subtext of the narrative, is these theological lessons are being whispered ahead of time. And they already have been in history. This is, the same story has happened. If you know the Old Testament, you probably are thinking some of, the, some of these stories repeatedly over and over and over again, narratively, especially in the book of Genesis, but also throughout the Old Testament. Uh, pointing ahead to this one, this is kind of the last time this happens before Christ kind of fulfills the idea of overcoming barrenness spiritually when he dies on the cross for our sins. Uh, so it's the final one of them, but it's one in a long series of, of events, of barrenness overcoming and virginity overcoming uh, events, but especially barrenness. Mary's special uh, with her virginity. So it's not based on our works. Our only hope is that God will look upon us in love and grace and say live, just like he did for Elizabeth and, and, um, and Zechariah and, and for Mary. He just looked upon them and said, and live womb, be fertile, conceive a child. God spoke and it became a possibility. In the same way God speaks in the world through his son, he looks at dead people like you and me and says, walk, get up out of the tomb, walk out. That's what Christ makes possible through his death and resurrection. So these stories together then, in terms of the, same, the, the, the uh, repetition here, the, the sameness, there's a lot of things we could say, but I think one of the big things here these stories together then in a repeated way, kind of a one-two punch before we even get to the ministry of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. We already see in a one-two punch kind of way that God is going to bring life from non-life yet again for people. It's not just in, not just in a creational manner uh, anymore physically, but for the pinnacle of his creation, people uh, like, like you and me. It drives home that fact that God saves us by grace through faith. You could even say here, I think, that barrenness and virginity had to precede Christ so that we wouldn't be confused with who does the saving. This had to happen, I think you could say. God knows this. If it wasn't this way, we could be confused with who, who in fact does save here. Is it God and people? Does God kind of work with some pre-existent good matter inside of us to, to make this beautiful sculpture? Are, are we a, a set of wonderful oil paints and a, and a beautiful woven canvas and a set of wonderful paintbrushes that God has something to work with to make a beautiful painting? Or does God snap his fingers and make the painting completed, exist, just appear out of nothing? That's the reality. Not the former. There's nothing for God to work with. Goodness-wise inside of us, he just snaps his fingers and, and we're, we're saved. We're beautiful. We're transferred into the kingdom of light. We're in the Son's, Christ's, image. That, that happens instantaneously by, 
by faith, but we don't cooperate with it. So, so barrenness and virginity here, I think, had to, it had to precede and kind of accompany the birth of the Christ so that we wouldn't be confused uh, over the matter of, of who does the saving. It, it screams God alone saves and we alone benefit. All right, so that's the first thing. What's the same? And again, there are many other things there that we could look at, but that's one big one, maybe the biggest. The, what's different, again, there, there are a lot of things that are different here that I think all undergird the same idea. So I'm going to talk about, I think, the main idea here. Uh, and that, that is, like I said before, um, the difference is what happens to Zechariah and Mary. You guys notice this after they're, con- they're kind of confronted with this amazing news that the, the angel Gabriel calls it good news to um, Zechariah. I think it says to Mary or not, but uh, for sure, Zechariah, this is good news that this is happening. And the responses are similar, but the, the responses of the angel are different. And the, the broader thing here, though, is, and I'll come back to this, is that Zechariah and Mary represent two different testaments of the Bible or, or covenants. Zechariah represents the old, moving towards Mary, who is kind of this figure of and the, the Christ child inside of her, of course, which is she's about to conceive the child, represents the new, the new testament. I'll come back to that. But... But the big difference here, kind of underneath that, that I want to help you to see, we could ask a question, how does that, what does that mean, how does that look? The big uh, difference here is that Zechariah is punished for his doubt, but Mary is not. That's the big thing I want you to see for differences today. A lot of other things I'll mention along the way here that undergird this, but the big difference is, if you noticed, Zechariah was punished and turned mute by the angel for not believing that God was able to do this for his wife. Mary also asked the same question, how is this going to be? And doubted, but her sin was passed over. She wasn't stricken mute, right? She wasn't turned blind. She wasn't punished in any way. And actually, she later believed. So it's kind of on two levels, they're different. On the initial level, they both have the same response. How is this going to happen? Zechariah, you're punished for it. You can't speak until John's born. But with Mary, he just kind of keeps talking and kind of lets her go, gives her a pass or something. But, and later, she does believe. So Kind of different angles on it, but in both cases, she's different than Zechariah. Mary's a different uh, figure in how, and just in what happens there. So, let me just remind you of this. Verse 20 uh, says, again, this is in reference to Zechariah, the the, um, angel Gabriel speaking to him. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And then verse 34, skipping down, Mary said to Gabriel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? It's the same question, basically. And verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And later on, she believes, but not here initially. But point is, she's shown patience. Where's her muteness, right? Where's her blindness? Where's her punishment for, for disbelief? That's the big question right? Why the difference here? Why are they juxtaposed? What is this change, even just in a matter of months here? Gabriel speaking to both. What is this telling us about God? What's this telling us about salvation? What's this telling us about us? What's this telling us about the boy inside Mary who's going to be born of the world to kind of continue what Gabriel is sort of doing here uh, in um, reference to Mary and bypassing her sin? Disbelief in God on any level is sin, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the core sin. It's not that you looked at porn this morning. 
uh, though that is sin. The, the, the bigger sin is you, you replaced uh, God with porn. The bigger sin is you replaced God with yourself. The bigger sin is that when, when we say, I actually don't need God that much today. That's the bigger sin. It's actually much more deep-seated than just a, a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, sin is doing anything at all in our life as though God isn't there. How many times have you done that? I mean, I, this morning has been dozens of times for me already. You know, it's like it's, it's kind of constant, this human uh, inclination we have to think we're something when we're nothing. That's what, that's what sin really is. And that's actually what you're seeing here in Zechariah and Mary is kind of this, I don't think God's able to do that. How can this be? How can God actually save? How can, actually, how can, how can God actually bring life from non-life? I just don't think it's possible. So it's a subtle suggestion of that, right? But it's still, it's the same, it's the same posture towards God as God is not able. Or you look back at some of these stories, too, in the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham and Sarah is one of them in Genesis where God says to Abraham, you're going to have a son. I'm going to bring my Messiah through him, Christ. And this is thousands of years before him. But I'm going to answer the world's problems through him. And, and Abraham looks around and says, well, that's great, but my wife's super old and can't have kids anymore. I'm super old. So what I'm going to do is have sex with Hagar, my wife's handmaiden, and then that's the son that you'll use, God. And so he does that. They have a boy named Ishmael, and actually Abraham says to God, look what I've done, God. Now you have someone to work with. And God says, no, actually, that's not what I said. I said, your wife's going to have a kid. And, she, and, and that boy will be a child of promise because it will be clear to you and your wife and the world watching forever because it's written in here that I did it and you did not. See, even back there, the gospel's being whispered, maybe even shouted, that God has to do it or it won't be done. The line of Christ is the line of, of Isaac, the child of the promise, not the line of Hagar and Ishmael where Abraham tried to work out the promise on his own, to try to say, God, you're obviously not able to work here, so I'm going to work for you. Legalism, moralism, God, you're unable, and I am. Let me cooperate with you and kind of hold hands, and we can do this together. Pat me on the back, because I got this. Put me in the game, coach. It's kind of that religious idea of, of um, well, I mean, broadly speaking, re religious idea, but it's, that's kind of syncretized a bit with Christianity. That's sometimes what we get. The big question is, again, why the difference? And, and the answer here, the broad answer, and I'll come back and explain this, the broad answer is because God is up to something new with Mary and Jesus. So Mary here, birth narrative-wise, birth announcement narrative-wise, but especially the baby boy she's about to miraculously conceive, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, they both represent a different way of God relating to people over and against the old way. And Zechariah represents that old way. So let's talk a little bit more about that, because I've been mentioning this as we've been going on here. The question is, well, how does that work exactly? What, is that, what does that mean? Just a few things here. First with Zechariah, we'll start with him because he's first. Zechariah, whose child John the Baptist would kind of be the final Old Testament prophet, and as you saw in the passage, who's likened to Elijah, who was in a lot of ways the greatest of Old Testament prophets, Together, they represent the Old Testament. Aaron's mentioned, who was the first uh, Levite in the Old Testament, who was the brother of Moses, who all of the law and temple stuff and sacrifice stuff of the Old Testament came through Aaron. And, and the law is, is just indicative of what God was up to in, in Old Testament times. He, he, was, he was saying to Israel over and over again, 
your sins will be punished accordingly. I'm, in, I'm drawing near to you, but you have to keep these laws to stay in covenant with me. If you do, then you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. It's really a, 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 a in obedience will be rewarded. So uh, it's a tit for tat kind of thing. Leviticus 18.5 says, you shall, God speaking in the Old Testament, you shall therefore keep my statutes and rules. Look what he says here. If a person does them, he shall live by them. If you do them, you will live. I am the Lord. So th- th- this covenant then was a very, and this is one of the many references, but it was a do this and you will live, fail and you will die type covenant. Uh, it's a typical way many people understand religion, and it was part of Israel's history in a lot of ways, um, all of our history, because we, as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, we come from this, uh, this line. But there was a break in it. We'll come to that. There was a change that Christ inaugurated. But this was a covenant, the old covenant, was a covenant that was meant to fail. Please understand that. It's something that, that goes bypassed and overlooked by many Christians and non-Christians alike so often. Uh, it was a covenant that was meant to fail to show Israel and the world that our own righteousness and ability to do good was never going to be the way into relationship with God. It only brought death and despair and judgment. The law said, though the law was good, when God says do not commit adultery or do not worship other gods, that's a good thing. The problem was it was built on faulty promises because we couldn't keep them. So it shouts, we are not the answer. The law shouts, you are not the answer. I am not the answer. And so faithful Israelites struggling to keep that law underneath that type of uh, spiritual regime, you could call it, in Old Testament times, uh, they would struggle, but they would, if they were attuned to that idea, would look for something other than law to save. Actually, Romans 3.19, back in the New Testament, says that the law stopped our mouths. We know that whatever the law says here, it says it speaks to those who are under it, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The purpose of the law was to stop your mouth so you'd stop speaking about your amazingness before God and other people. It, it, it was to raise the bar so high that you would stop looking to yourself and you'd look elsewhere for deliverance. That's the idea of stopping, stopping the mouth. It's actually uh, exactly what's happening to Zechariah, but that's just literal for him, right? He was, his mouth was literally shut. And, and he represents all of us, in a sense. Under law, we have nothing to say before God. Nothing. Nothing. Except, God, please save me. Do something to save. I, I, I'm dead. I can't do it. Show up. Do something new. This old thing isn't working uh, any, anymore. So exactly what's happening to Zechariah is basically a microcosm then of the Old Testament experience. Because you did not believe, remember that's what the angel said to Gabriel in Luke 1, because you did not believe, you will be struck mute. Because you sinned, you will be struck mute. Because you did not believe the word of the Lord, you will be punished. It's the same thing as Leviticus 18.5 is saying, but praise be to God, it's the thing that is coming to an end. And much quicker than you might think here in the narrative. Because a few verses later, we don't see it happen. Right? So let's move on then. The, the, the New Testament then, that's Old Testament. The New Testament's based on faith, not on all that stuff I was just talking about. Not on law. Belief, not doing. Romans 10 says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. See the doing idea? If you do the commandments, then you will live. It's an if-then, tit for tat. 
conditional covenant. But, strong contrast conjunction here. But the righteousness based on faith says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One's doing, one's believing. One's working, one's resting. Note the strong difference, you guys. The, the, the New Testament's not an extension of the old. It's not saying now you have the ability to do all the law, so get to work. It's not kind of a, a fresh twist on what Moses was up to or what God is up to with law. And it's a distinct break. One's about doing, one's about believing. So it's based, the new covenant, the new testament, the thing Jesus is bringing into the world, the new way of God relating to people is based on trust, faith. It's, it's, a, it's based on the idea that God works for us, not us for him. God's serving us, not us serving him. As, as we said before, it's based on the fact that God makes fertile barren wastelands. That's the New Testament. It's centered not on our law-keeping ability, not even partly, but on something distinctly apart from law. Romans 3 says that elsewhere. I don't have this on screen, but Romans 3 says elsewhere, the new type of righteousness God gives to the world through his son is apart from the Ten Commandments. It's apart from law. It's distinct. It's not Jesus saying, as, as another prophet coming into the world and saying, okay, let's get back to basics. Here's the Ten Commandments again. I'm going to help you keep them better. It's throwing it back and saying that the, the new thing now is different. It's a body. It's a person. It's a son. It's a sacrifice. It's a cross. It's blood. It's resurrection. It's empty tomb. Apart from law, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So, so back to Luke 1. The fact that Mary's sin is passed over and relatedly the fact that she eventually believes, to pull from Romans 10 language, believes the angel, believes the word of the Lord, believes in the fact that God is able to bring life apart from our works, is, it, it's indicative of the new covenant that will be based on the work of Christ, God's son, her son, not ours. And again, it would center on the call to trust God to save not ourselves to keep enough laws to stay in covenant with, with the Lord. Now, this is precisely, you guys, why Christmas is good news. Uh, it's, it's why the birth narratives occur this way. It's why there's movement from the not-so-great way to the better way. It's from Zechariah to Mary. It's from works to faith. It's from punishment, which you'd kind of expect for sin, right, to this kind of strange thing of, well, wait a minute, do we skip a verse here? What hap what, what, what's up with Mary? Why isn't she stricken mute? It's movement from the former to uh, the latter, which is, is the better way. If Christ came into the world to help reinforce the Old Testament, like I said before, if Mary is punished here, if Mary is stricken mute, it's bad news. And Christmas instantly loses all of its joyful mojo. There's, there's no special revelation of God. He's just a guy, another prophet, who's kind of re-saying, re-undergirding what God said before in history in kind of this tit-for-tat conditional kind of way. But ra rather there's a change. So if he's the son of God then, and there is that change, if he's the one who will help punishment of sin bypass us like he did for Mary, if he's the harbinger of a new covenant way of God relating to weary sinners, then it's the hope above all hopes. This is why Christmas is a time of peace and happiness and joy is because Mary wasn't punished for that sin of disbelief. 
And she did, she did actually end up believing uh, with the help of the Lord. And so that's exactly why uh, we, we can align with Zechariah, all of us. The hope is that Mary's experience will be possible for all of us as well. And in Christ it is. So the movement here is huge. And actually, I want to mention this too. This is going to sound like I'm talking on both sides of my mouth, so just bear with me <laughs> here. Um, Zechariah's response initially uh, when he says, how can this be? Remember that? So he says, your wife's going to bear a son. She's, she's barren, but she's going to bear a son. And he says, how can this be? On one level, that's sin, that's disbelief. We talked about that angle on it, but on a completely different angle. <laughs> uh, the statement, how can this be, is actually indicative, I think, of what a sinner should say before God's laws. You know, we, we should have this, in other, in other words, we should have this understanding of seeing law and saying, how can I do that? See, seeing the statement, if you keep this, then you will live, saying, how, how can this be? I can't do it. It's actually kind of a right response, uh, in, in, even though he's not really responding to law, he's responding to um, the birth announcement of his uh, future son, John, but still, th- there's a whisper here of him representing the Old Testament of how can this be? Uh, how, how can we live before a holy and perfect God uh, through law? Uh, the, the wrong response would have been, I, I can do it, I can do this, right? Can, I can do it perfectly to law, but for Zechariah and Mary, if they were to say, all right, I mean, I can, I can do this, God, just show me a man, you know, in Mary's case, or let me just marry Joshua ahead of time, or Joseph ahead of time, or, you know, let me uh, get on some fertility meds or something like that, or uh, do the in vitro thing, or whatever it is for, for Elizabeth, that would have been the wrong perspective. But rather, to say, how can this be, is to say, impossible. The point is to get us here. In, in Luke 1, um, actually, I, forgot to, I think I forgot to read um, earlier from uh, Hebrews, I think. Hebrews 10, 16 to 17 says, This is the covenant I will make with them, declares the Lord. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So going back to Mary for a second here, exactly what, what God is doing. He's kind of forgetting the fact through Gabriel that she just disbelieved and sinned. That's the essence of this new thing that, that he's up to. But I think this trajectory here again, though, to go back and go one more slide, Carl, is to get us here. In Luke 1, Gabriel says to Mary, nothing's impossible with God. Later in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 19, 25 and 26, um, Jesus says to his disciples, with people, salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He's basically saying the same thing that Gabriel said, right? The Bible's tireless at this. Whether it's showing us through narrative in a whisper kind of way or stating it very clearly here, we need to know over and over and over again that salvation for you and me is absolutely, absolutely impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, this, this actually will work. If God's intending it, it will, it will happen. And so, uh, really then in conclusion, there's a lot more to be said, but um, the, the only, as you read this uh, narrative, the, the only command we get here in, <clears throat> in uh, the whole passage is do not fear. It comes up a couple of times. Everything else is just kind of described. But the, the only thing we see on kind of an imperative command level is, is don't fear. So as we, t- as we take away uh, the, the truths from the passage, really all we're called to do here is believe 
that God's up to something new in the world, that he's going to bypass sin, that Mary's experiences can be yours and mine for the millionth or first time today, that sin can be bypassed by the one she is going to miraculously conceive here very shortly in the story. Nails, spears will pierce him through for me and, and you. He's the substitute. And so that, that, that's how, fast forwarding ahead uh, to the cross, that's how this initial bypassing and passing over of sin can occur earlier in the story because God knew later in history he was going to supply his son to willingly be a sacrifice for you so sin can be passed over. So because of all this, the angels say, don't fear, don't fear. So I, I, what I love about this too is uh, if, you can, if you can align with Mary in any way, I think Luke 1 says to all of us who have messed up, who have sinned greatly, who have doubted God, if you've ever lived as though God's not sufficient for your life, ever, I mean, most of you probably, including me, are probably actively doing that right now in some way. It's hard not to. If you've ever lived as though God's not sufficient for you, if you've ever lived as though you're your own savior, on whatever level, uh, what, what, what this passage says to you is uh, God will forgive you of that sin, that he'll bypass it, that, that there's, there's a new way out from that dark tomb, and it's Christ himself calling into it for you. That's the good news. So if you fear, if you doubt, if you wrestle with how is God going to create life from non-life uh, in, in my heart, uh, in, just in my life physically too, um, if you're afraid of something, and I, and I know you guys are, I am, we're all, we all fear something. What, but whatever you fear, the scriptures say, because, all, because of all of this that just happened here, because, because, of, because of these narratives, because of the way God's working in a special way through Mary here, over and against Zechariah, in a contrasting way to the Old Testament way of him working in, in the world, rejoice and don't fear. If God just came into the world and, and didn't work this way, we, had, we would have everything to fear because we're sinners. And, and, and God, all God calls us to is, is belief. And, but he says he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. He's looking for those who are faith-filled, uh, not those who are perfect good people, but wretches who recognize their wretchedness and who, who bend the knee before him and say, you're Lord, you're alive, you died for my sins and you're sufficient. So if, that, if that's you today or if, it's, if, it's, if that was you five years ago or, or 50, um, that, that what, what the scriptures say to us today is that God is really, really, really good and he's doing a new thing in the world that's not based on your moral effort or law, but based on grace and based on, based on faith. So believe in him, believe in the Son afresh, and, and do not fear. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, uh, for the gospel represented, the two covenants of Scripture that help tell a story in, uh, in two birth announcements in Luke 1. Thank you for um, the, uh, the reminder that we're all like Zechariah in rejecting you, and we're all like Mary as well in the fact that uh, you favor us if we're believers We've been chosen and favored by you, uh, God. Thank you that there's no law mentioned in reference to Mary, uh, simply a woman who believed and believed that your word was true. It was accurate, factual, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. It was going to happen. In the same way, God, help us to believe that you're able to bring life from the non-life of our hearts and souls. Uh, that that's, in fact, exactly what you did 
on the cross 2,000 years ago. So thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for, in that way, overcoming uh, forever spiritual barrenness in the hearts of the redeemed. Uh, and thank you it's not by our works, but simply by your choice. In Christ's name we pray it all. Amen.